So uh, my name is Yasmin Al-Hadi. I am at YesGuru on Instagram. I am a lawyer, a mother, a comedian, a relationship expert, and uh, somebody who cares about service, service-oriented person. Yeah, I definitely picked that up from from your comedy, but also you participate, especially like in Ramadan, you participated in so many events to raise um, awareness and funds for, you know, different organizations. Do you think there's a connection between, because what you listed, you're a lawyer, you're a relationship expert, you're a comedian, do you think there's a connection, <laughs> like you're service oriented, do you think there's a common thread or like those are just different facets of one, you know, personality? Well, I think that I do those things with the intention of service. I am a public servant on the attorney side, and so I work in the public sector. And I'm also um, somebody who cares pretty deeply about using comedy as a means to try to get people to think, to try to get people to dig a little bit deeper about their emotional state, to try to connect with one another, and to ask good questions of themselves. And I think that the the side of me that is a relationship expert and advisor and was a, I'm a retired matchmaker. I match made for a little over 12 years. Ha, has really been about service to humanity and to try to get people to find love and to hold on to relationships because I believe that they are the bedrock of having a strong society. So I have helped now facilitate my, my 53rd couple is about to get their, their marriage contract signed. So that's pretty exciting. I've had dozens of kids along the way and no divorces, knock on wood. You know, divorce is, divorce is okay in the right circumstance. But so I don't think that that has anything to do with me. And I don't think any of this stuff has anything to do with me, to be honest too. I, I really believe that when you are in the state of service, you believe that you are a facilitator. So any good that comes from you is a facilitation of blessing. And anything that's sort of bad, arrogant or you know, or self-serving, it comes from you. It comes from the nafs. I think that's really profound because in the world of self-help and self-development, self-improvement, I feel there's this huge myopic focus on the self and you're neglecting all these external factors, you're neglecting divine decree, you're neglecting a greater destiny. Maybe you're a tool, not to you know use that with a negative connotation, but maybe you're literally a facilitator of some act or event or service that's supposed to happen on the earth and you're just a mechanism by which that happens. Right, you're not, so, you're not the center of the universe. We don't talk about duties or obligations or responsibilities oftentimes when we talk about self-love or self-care, but a part of having self-care not turn into self-obsession is thinking about how self-care is community care. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, it's really profound, especially since for any podcasters out there, when you reach out to someone to say, oh, hey, would you be on my podcast? You can have this sort of narrow-minded view of oh this person does really excellent work they're really good at xyz not not remembering not realizing they're just you know a component of a bigger of a bigger organ right like <laughs> you know they're like a cell in a body and so like this hyper myopic focus on the self it's like then when you fail then when you're not productive or you're not amazing then you really are hard on yourself because you're just like well why am i <laughs> such a you know failure well no like have a little bit more humility it's not always about you there's a greater 
organization to things and maybe your failure is just a part of a bigger story that's very beautifully said i could not have said it better myself you're right but i'm curious the law work that you do you said that's in the public sector so was that an ambition you had early yeah i i'm you know very much a product of living in an environment i grew up in the south and realizing that people had different set of rights they had a different sort of piece of discrimination and prejudice that that they encountered in society and i always really wanted fairness and justice and that really imbued everything that I did and I realized that that was kind of like a driving force for me and I remember you know I, I grew up Muslim visibly Muslim in the south and it was not easy I moved from Kentucky to Alabama so it went from like tolerable that's okay to like way worse and when I went there I realized that I found my voice when I stood up for just a young a young Jewish girl that was being taunted in my middle school and I stood up to the first bully and you know made him cry and that felt good but I said, you know, there's got to be more. There's got to be more to this. <laughs> Why would I finally have a voice? They had been taunting me. Nobody stood up for me and I didn't stand up for me. But it was like when someone else got attacked, I was able to stand up finally and to hear my voice and to realize I was powerful. So I thought there's got to be something to that. I think that I could probably advocate for people. And so that kind of led my decisions to later go to law school. I'm a big product also of September 11th and the chaos that ensued after that and a tragedy and a kind of a galvanizing point in, in American society in thinking about the role of the government and how, how it's supposed to serve its people and how people are supposed to address wrongs. So I think that it's a product of all of that, but I've always been very justice-minded and I believe in fairness. And I, I wanted to make people whole, so that's what really got me into thinking about working in the public sector now like before the before times as people say my alma mater usually has like yeah <laughs> like when I when if I have kids I'll just tell them like oh the before times and they'll just be like mom what are you talking about and it's like pre pre all of this my alma mater would have these reunions where people would gather very closely it wouldn't even be possible now we would gather for different talks and I remember this one person she's this voice coach she was saying that because the whole conference all women alumni because Princeton didn't allow women in until like the 1950s so like you can imagine and the school started like hundreds of years before that I think so you can imagine I went to Princeton so yeah we were talking about how do you um, use your voice to advocate for yourself or for change in your workplace etc as a woman because sometimes mansplaining or different you know phenomena like that where it's like I just said that and you're repeating it and people are paying attention to you how do you combat yeah. <laughs> combat you things just like take that my idea and get yeah. <laughs> I want to do a comedy video about that actually I've been talking yeah about. exactly please do <laughs> she did this exercise where she put us in groups of three and the two people in the group had to listen to one person complain about something and the point of the exercise was you speak more powerfully when you're advocating for someone else. This person has this complaint, you're not using any negative words to describe their complaint, but because you, you are a different agent, right? You're speaking on behalf of them, you're speaking more powerfully than if you were the one talking about your own complaint. People really can speak very powerfully when they're acting on behalf of others than themselves. And it goes back to that idea of we're components of a, of a larger mechanism. We're not individual bow, bow to me actors in the world. Yeah, and we're part of movements. Some people are like, I'm the first. 
I'm this, and it's like, are you the first and only? What are, where, why do you keep saying that? You know, I'm the first yeah. at this. I'm the pioneer. And it's like, wh- why don't, why don't you instead focus on how are you going to not be the last? How are you yeah. going to open up the space so that other people feel supported and so that you're part of something that is a true legacy, a movement? Even there's this quote by, he passed away, but he said, I am somehow less interested in the weight and convolutions of Einstein's brain than in the mere certainty that people of equal talent have lived and died in cotton fields and sweatshops. And when I heard, yeah, it was just like, when you say you were the first at something or the pioneer, there very well could have been multitudes of people before you who are, were equally capable of producing the same effect, but because of societal circumstances, racism, pollution, poverty, trauma, they could not, like, it didn't manifest for them, but they had the potential, like you had the potential. So when you say you're the first, are you really, really the first, or is- The book by Malcolm Gladwell, Outliers, where he talks about how people in, in certain circumstances, how all the circumstances align for them to be leaders, or for them to be chosen. Yeah. yeah. Um, we have to realize that it's not us. It's not all about us, and like what we did, and like how hard we work. But it even speaks to this idea of racism. People say that's the second pandemic that black people are in. COVID-19 is one pandemic, but racism is also another pandemic. It speaks to that idea of racism because I feel like people focus on the meritocracy a lot or on individualism a lot. Oh, I got here because I deserve to. I worked hard. What do you mean there's racism? Like you're blaming things. You just don't work hard. You're lazy, etc. What you said about the first being humble, recognizing you're maybe part of a greater effort. Then when you take the focus off of yourself and you look externally, you can see why racism would hold someone back. You can see why that's an actual issue for housing, voting, just basic human rights. Yeah, education, exactly. uh, knowing what your rights are. Exactly. Um, it's, it changes everything. And, and racism is a, it's a, it's a pandemic and it's been one that hasn't gone away. It's been something that unfortunately has just morphed into different forms. Do you think that's why there's some resistance in the Muslim community or outside of the Muslim community to embrace the fact that black people truly feel that racism has had a detrimental effect in their, in their lives? Oh yeah, oh yeah. I mean, there is no question. So look, you hit it. You hit it on the money. That a lot of the Muslim American community sometimes has a hard time accepting the fact that if people just didn't work harder, they wouldn't have just gotten farther. Because due to the 1965 Hart Seller Act, okay, that was on the back of the civil rights movement and the Voting Rights Act of 1965 is also part of that and um, the Civil Rights uh, Act of 1964. Due to all of that work, it allowed for countries to Im- that, that traditionally were not allowed due to quota system to, to allow immigrants to come into this country that were at the top of their game, right? That had the financial means, that had the education. Yeah. And so th- these are the best of the best, the cream of the crop of their countries came here. That's a l- large group of the immigrant Muslim population. They are the stellar superstars of their country. So all they know is to just be scrappy and work so, so hard. I actually came as a result of the 1980 Refugee Act because 
I'm a I'm a an asylum seeker in this country. So when we came now, when you're a refugee or when you come as an asylum seeker, that's a whole different world, because you come and you are not the best of the best in your country. You are seeking the protection of the United States because of either war or a terrible tyranny or um, um, an injustice, a persecution that is happening in your home countries. And so you have to work from zero, from scratch. Sometimes you don't have the luxury of having a PhD or being a student to pay for being a student here or to have the MD, the medical doctor degree. And then you're not to say that people who came um, here having those those degrees from their countries didn't have to work hard to get them recognized here. They have to do the USMLE. They have to do a million other we, what we call an Arabic muadala. That's the word that's coming into my head. Basically, a, a way to recognize their degrees here in the United States. They have to yeah. pass incredible amount of certifications and whatnot and, and examinations. So all I'm trying to say is they did have to work, but they had a leg up. That's the whole idea about racism and understanding privilege. Privilege means that you are at a different place at the start. The start line looks different at the race. So the start lines is is different inherently by the systems that created opportunity. And that's what privilege is about. It doesn't say that you didn't work hard for your whatever or you didn't deserve whatever. It, that's not what it's saying. It's saying that you started at a different, a different place in the race. And I think that if people can, can think about that a little bit more and understand that, number one, without the African-American Muslim struggle, we would not be, most of the immigrants in this country that are Muslim would not have ever made it, number one. And then number two, when you have family you know, that has been here, right? And I, I, I consider Muslims as family. When you've got family that have been around, right? And that have experienced something in this country that you have not, and you will never understand, and that is chattel slavery and the slave trade from the 1600s and then from the inception of this country. When you have someone who's experienced that level of trauma, you will never be able to say that you and that person are on the same, you're running the same race at the same starting line you're just not and you have to respect and understand and and sympathize but not just sympathize empathize and empower the individuals who came before you uh, who laid the foundation and who went through an, an, an unimaginable tearing up of culture of religion of language of family I mean chattel slavery in the United States was so abhorrent and, and, and so deeply traumatic and so deeply effective at ripping people from their understanding of a home and their understanding of a, of a united culture that we cannot really understand that the effect of that history. And then the discrimination that came after it, everything from Jim Crow to the 13th Amendment. If you watch 13th, this incredible documentary I've watched five times on Netflix you know, that goes into the, the explanation of the history of this country. So it's part and parcel of our history. And so if you come in as an immigrant, as a Muslim community, I think you think, well, you just work hard and you achieve. Well, maybe the same barriers don't exist for you because you started at a different, you're running a different race, started a different, at a different starting line. So there's this idea in the black community that there's two types of people, even though it's extremely reductionist, but, you know, just for argument's sake, one type of person is the person who goes to the protest and they get arrested because they're out after curfew and they're suffering physical violence and then there's the black person who's in the ivory tower 
and they're dealing with microaggressions. And there can be this sort of war between the two types of people and that the former will say like, oh, you're not suffering real trauma, you're suffering microaggressions. Like, I wish I had your problems. And then the second will be like, well, you can't compare pain. My pain is valid. My problems are valid. Racism is valid in any context. But the thing that's interesting is even that second type of person, their wealth or their higher education, their knowledge, etc., it doesn't insulate them from police violence or racial violence, right? Like, if they go out into the street, they're still a black person. Like, they still wear that. That's you how that's saying? how the police views them. That's how coercive state action views them. You've got it. And that's how the criminal justice system views them. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, you shouldn't be divisive with one another. You Instead, you need to be bolstering each other, right? We all need to be bolstering each other to understand that, you know, that discrimination is very real and it has very lasting effects on our communities, yeah. as on our family. We are yeah. one family. I even, I even read that racism can generate PTSD. You can develop PTSD symptoms. And the effect of PTSD, anyone who suffered PTSD knows that the impact it has on your productivity, your ability to relate to other people, to feel connected, be an actualized human being is so profound. Even I saw this tweet on Twitter, the revolution will not be diversity and inclusion trainings. Even research shows that diversity and inclusion trainings don't really work. You have to present it in such a unique way that you sort of break through that white noise of people filtering out your words like, oh, I've heard this before. You need to present it in a unique way. And that's why I love your comedy, especially your recent pieces. You break through that white noise of like, oh, I've heard this before, I'm not really going to pay attention. You present it in a way where I'm forced to pay attention. And I even saw this piece about how AI, artificial intelligence, it cannot do jokes. It cannot do comedy because the human experience is so unique. Yeah, that's like job security, girl. I need to be, I need to be on that comedy tip. Yeah. How would you explain? This is part one of two. Fine.